Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Sam Langsdale and Elizabeth Cootie talking about Monstrous Women in Comics, their new edited collection. Uh, Sam and Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're really excited to talk about our work. Yes, indeed. So I'm hoping we can start by you sharing a little bit about why you put this collection together. What about what made you want to create a collection on monstrous women in comics? Um, It started when we met at a very small symposium on sacred texts and comics. Um, Elizabeth and I were both invited to share work there. Um, I brought a paper that specifically was looking at the Marvel comic, the X-Men, and specifically the Dark Phoenix saga um, within that book. And I was using monster theory to sort of explore um, that text in particular for a variety of reasons. And I got really great feedback. Um, at that symposium, in addition to um, getting to know Elizabeth quite well. And before we left, we decided we'd really like to to do something together in the future. Um, so in the following years, I, I kind of set my mind to organizing my own conference, um, specifically around this theme of monstrous women in comics. And the first people that I hit up were the people that I'd met at the symposium. Um, so I reached out to Elizabeth and, and said, you know, please come play with me. Um, so the conference then that resulted that, that shares the name with our, our book um, was held at the University of North Texas. And I, I have to say, I realize I'm biased, but it's one of the best academic conferences I've ever been to. And I organized it, but it just, the collection of people that came, the the range of research that was shared was so interesting and inspiring. It was fun. Um, everybody got along. I mean, it was, again, one of the few events where people actually elected to spend their spare time together rather than running to their own rooms and, you know, not turning up until the events. And so um, for me, it was, I think, the success of that conference that really got me excited. And I will just say, from my perspective, it's completely um, to Elizabeth's credit that the book exists because at the end of the conference, she brought it up. I mean, I was kind of, you know, on the <laughs> on the down by the end of the day, I was really tired. And um, she said, let's do this. Let's, let's make a book. I'm going to help you. We're going to do this together. And I, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, you know what, can we talk about it tomorrow? <laughs> but it was that initiative um, that I think really, really sedimented that this was a worthwhile project. Mm-hmm. Well, and the credit really goes to the conferences themselves that we were able to put something like this together, both the the first Sacred Text and Comics Conference and then the Monstrous Women in Comics Conference. The fact that both of those were successful events where we really did get to exchange ideas and, uh, you know, have really see the the ideas blossom. Mm-hmm. In other words, both were very nurturing kind of mm-hmm. intellectual environments. Um, the kind of conference where everybody's there to um, really uh, understand the material better and to help each other along. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at the end of that Monstrous Women conference, I thought, well, you know, the other conference had a book come out of it. It seems to me that this one could too. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it was really just the idea that these are ideas that uh, need even further development or deserve further development and to be shared. So um, before we get into some of the chapters in the collection, can you, one of you or both of you kind of talk about the overarching framework and, and how you sort of thought about this and, and how you framed it and put it together? There's five different parts. So um, if you can share a little bit of that, that would be great. Sure. Um, you know, I will say that uh, the the sections in terms of how they formed, I think happened pretty organically. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
Well, I, that's maybe slightly misleading. So <laughs> as, as somebody who obviously had some control over which papers were admitted to the conference in the first place, um, you know, I, I have some memory of the kinds of themes that kept occurring in terms of people's mm-hmm. abstract submissions. But that, of course, doesn't really give you the full picture of what's going to materialize. And and as Elizabeth said, um, the kinds of papers that were actually shared um, were really enriching, but also exploratory and open. And I think through the process of the conference, I it was easy for me then to see how we wound up with the sections that we did the the kinds of papers that materialized the kinds of work that were being done um kind of lent themselves to the divisions that we made based on the kind of work that people were interested in doing now I will also say um when you gain any kind of familiarity with monster theory um I think you you see these kinds of categories over and over again as well. Some of this is not unique to our book, but um, resonates with that sort of wider field of monster studies um, and within that kind of monster theory in particular. So some of the themes that we chose um, definitely echo the kind of scholarship that's being done more broadly. Right. And I mean, the, the, Sections that you see in the book um, do at least somewhat reflect the sections that we had as sort of groups of people presenting papers and do it working their their work together mm-hmm. at the conference. But they, I mean, there is some some uh, resorting that we had uh, done as part of the editing process just to give everything a little more sense and a little more flow. But I think mm-hmm. the, the overall, you can really see that these are papers that work were worked on alongside one another in each one of the sections. Right. And so your first part, like part one is sort of the origins, uh, it's origins, agency and paradoxes of monstrous women. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what is going on in those chapters? Highlight, you can sort of talk about each of them or, you know, sort of highlight some of the major themes if you'd like. Um, but just sort of, it, it seems to be a bit of setting the stage um, for some of what you've been talking about. Sure. So uh, the chapter that starts that section is mine. So it's about um, rewriting to control how the origins of Harley Quinn, Wonder Woman, and Mary Magdalene matter to women's perceived power. Now, this was an idea that I had as part of the conference, um, that is to take, uh, you know, two women from uh, comics and uh, try to understand how their differences in their origin stories uh, might help us better understand the origin story of Mary Magdalene, like the, the character in the New Testament. Um, and the, the idea that there could be, I mean, my, my background is in biblical scholarship, um, and I, the, the idea that comics could offer something really tangible to uh, people's understanding of uh, people's lives, uh, especially the way they're told in the biblical text, was just really intriguing to me. Um, and the fact that this idea of monstrosity was such a useful kind of theoretical tool to get at. Uh, what these differences were doing um, was one of the reasons that I was really attracted to the idea. And when Sam gave her first paper, that it's sort of, ah, you know, that's the kind of theoretical lens that might be helpful to me. Um, so really, th- this is, this whole paper is all about these origin stories and how um, the comics can be of real use in looking at the biblical story to try and understand how women's power is perceived in these ways um, and sort of the, you know, what is it about women's power in particular that might be um, of use here or what might be changing, um, what might be disruptive in these different cases. Um, so, so that was my chapter trying to, you know, and honestly, uh, it was not a sense of vanity that made it go first. It really is the origin um, chapter. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to kind of kick this thing off. Um, and then Richard Stevens, J. Richard Stevens created a, a, a 
chapter there all about She-Hulk. So again, kind of keeping with these uh, DC characters, kind of breaking us in slowly here, keeping with, or sorry, the DC characters in mind, and then he goes to a Marvel character um, to try and, um, you know, use these kind of big comic characters to help people start to explore what we mean by monstrous here. Um, and he really gets into the idea of the monstrous feminist frame um, and try to understand the post-feminist discourse that's possible with She-Hulk, right? How, how can this character that, uh, whose origins literally come from a man, right, uh, whose uh, comic book birth uh, is about her blood transfusion from her cousin Bruce Banner, right? Um, how can this be part of a post-feminist discourse. Um, and he, he goes through a really interesting kind of history of the character and kind of a, uh, using these different feminist discourses to explore it. And then Ayani Cooper in that chapter, she's uh, doing a comparison with the, these two really exciting uh, newer series, Monstrous and Pretty Deadly. So she's taking these female monsters in these two pieces and trying to understand them as female, like uh, these monsters are, most of them are not kind of um, traditionally embodied, right, uh, as female, but trying to understand these monsters as female and those sort of border spaces around the feminine, around their hunger, around their sort of uh, profane in the religious sense kind of uh, understandings of uh, their, who they are. Um, in order to, again, try to figure out kind of what the, the paradox is here um, of being female and monstrous at the same time. So just all, all of these together, right, trying to kick off the, the different kinds of big themes and kind of give people an idea um, of both the kind of um, more mainstream comics kinds of stuff that we think more of our readers might be familiar with and then kind of get us into some of the other kinds of comics that we'll be exploring as well. Yeah, I would just, um, I think I would add that one of the cool things about the way that that first section operates is what, you know, we've got a quote there early on um, by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about the sort of paradoxical nature um, of the monster, right? Like that you can't actually you can't collapse it into an either or logic. Um, and I think that that's really interesting with respect to origins. People mm-hmm. often go searching for origins because they are looking for some kind of fixity, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to um, dispel anxieties or fears. And so if you can trace and track and then fix the origin of something, it, it supposedly will give you this kind of explanatory framework that's going to get rid of any ambiguity. And the really fascinating thing about the the progression of these chapters is that origins become less and less a source mm-hmm. of comfort and more and more a source of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and simultaneously, they are both, right? So um, I'm thinking about Ayani's chapter here in particular mm-hmm. when she's talking about the comic Monstrous. Um, you know, there is this sort of searching for the truth of a particular character's origin, but the more they find about that, the worse everything gets. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it is a kind of fascinating way for us to play as well with these larger concepts. Um, I would also say that from a feminist perspective, trying to think about agency within patriarchal context is always going to be a paradoxical project. Um, mm-hmm. How does one act with intention? when you are, um, when you find yourself in a, a social sort of setting that precludes your ability to do that. Um, so again, you know, as Elizabeth said, what we're really hoping to do with this first section is set readers up for the kinds of things that they can expect to find throughout the book. Yep. And, and then you move into, um, I think that's really interesting because a lot of this and a lot of, um, women in comics, but sort of these, these ideas of, of women becoming villain or monstrous, um, has to do with body, right. Mm -hmm. And constructions of the body, which is your sort of part two, but also with 
when part three formed, right, when we get into childbearing and childhood mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And so I, you know, I found that really interesting as you talk to it and reading as you set that up. So can you talk about then what you see with this second part, the, the importance of the body and the body sort of as monstrous and chapter four has one of my favorite new, um, <laughs> newer uh, comic book mm-hmm. uh, heroes, right? I love Faith and Zephyr. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you saw going on with like body and how we sort of present the women and the body. Yeah. Um, so again, this is something that presented itself um, based on the chapters we had submitted, but that also really resonates with the larger framework of monster studies. Um, it, it is primarily through embodiment that monstrosity is constructed. Um, and so it made a lot of sense to us um, that this would be a main theme, although as you've pointed out, it sort of oozes over every single section. I mean, I think that embodiment and bodies are our main part of um, everything that we've got in this book. So Stephanie Snyder's chapter, um, The Unremarkable Fatness of Valiant's Faith, is really fascinating because she does a lot with fat studies and disability studies to look at um, how it is that fat bodies have been made monstrous in certain societies. Um, But then she pushes that even further and and asks if, um, basically, if faith's fatness is monstrous enough. So one of the things that we get from monster theory is that um, monstrosity is never just a marker of horror and abject. It's also a marker of desire. Um, When a certain type of body is framed as monstrous, it's on the one hand because it evokes fears uh, in a certain society, but also because it evokes a sort of seduction, um, a sort of forbidden desire, right? And so for Stephanie, she was really interested in whether this comic successfully presents fatness in a sort of liberatory or progressive way, um, or mm-hmm. if it's sort of been sanitized, has the the monstrosity of this fat woman been defanged? Does the subversive quality of it get stripped away um, by virtue of being framed as a sort of somewhat mainstream superhero? Um, and I, I think she does a great job with that, right? She's both uh, welcoming of the sort of more diverse representation of embodiment in in superhero comics in particular, but um, also still constructively critical and really forcing us to ask ourselves what it is that we want um, when we, when we make claims for desiring things like greater representation. Um, I think the following chapter um, by Charlotte Fabricius is, again, it's a really great chapter to have in conversation with Stephanie's chapter because she's really building on disability theory um, to look at Gail Simone's run on the DC comic Batgirl. Um, and again, asking very similar questions, right? So for a character that um, Barbara Gordon as Batgirl who spends a time um, in a comic series as a disabled person, as a wheelchair user, and becomes a kind of um, alias called Oracle. Charlotte is asking if, again, that that's actually a kind of exciting um, and interesting inclusion into superhero comics, mm-hmm. or um, does it eventually get normalized and sanitized? Is the monstrosity of a disabled superhero um, sort of washed away by virtue of the retcon of the storyline. Um, and you know, spoiler, that she, <laughs> she sort of becomes able-bodied again at various points in the story. She leaves that alias of Oracle. She is no longer a wheelchair user um, and has full capacity of her body in ways that, you know, we are normatively told bodies should work. So again, there's a lot of push and pull here. And we think again about that Cohen quote. It's it's not an either or thing. I mean, it's very slippery to kind of be engaged in these types of analyses. And what I really like about both um, is that they are 
constructively critical, but they are not destroying what they love. I mean, these are still very tender chapters that um, treat their their sources with a lot of um, love and respect. Uh, the final chapter in this section um, by Carrie Chris Wagner is really fascinating. And I think for both Elizabeth and I, this was the farthest outside of our own wheelhouse. Is. Um, so Carrie is a social scientist and, and was bringing quantitative methods that um, she, in fact, sort of pioneered into this analysis, and it really mm-hmm. blew us both away. <laughs> I don't know, Elizabeth, if you want to talk sure. a little bit more about sure. this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. So her, the way that she was looking at both the queerness and violence in this, and then kind of looking at the the way that these elements work in this book. So the, the book she's talking about here is Insects, which is hard to say <laughs> on a podcast, but is... Um, spelled I-N and then S-E-X with a little T-S <laughs> at the end. Um, but the idea is that there are these um, these Victorian characters um, who are, uh, through various means that I won't get into, uh, turning into giant bugs and eating each other. Um, and part of what's going on in here, though, is these, this kind of queer relationship between some of the main characters um, and then the kind of uh, she's noticing the kind of uh, elements of punishment and reward around queerness, right? So the idea that there's this kind of you this understanding in a lot of fiction that queer characters uh, are, you know, punished for their queerness, like by the narrative that the plot and the the author will often kind of violence will happen to characters the further they go outside of you know quote unquote norms, right? Um, so part of what's going on here is she's tracking that. So she's try she tried to find a kind of um, mathematical way to track um, this kind of uh, work, um, and you know did an interesting job of showing us how it you know the relationship between uh, queerness and violence in in the comic, um, and honestly the 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 way that this um, kind of pushed at the boundaries of where Sam and I are in our own study, right. in our own work um, in terms of like just the methodology involved um, was really interesting. And one of the reasons that I really like this project, right. Because we are um, while we're, we're both, you know, work a lot in comics and we, you know, certainly have our own sort of uh, grounding in philosophy and that kind of thing these people were bringing their own methods, their Mm -hmm. own kinds of methodological expertise. So, you know, having to, you know, work with them across this to both translate this into something that would make for a coherent book, right? A coherent overall piece, but also let them, you know, let them fly their flags and mm-hmm. do their stuff and, you know, and actually use their expertise to the fullest extent was one of the most rewarding parts of the project, actually. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because then you move into this sort of discussion of or the next three in the part three, right? In the next three chapters move into this discussion of childbearing and motherhood and what that means and how that sort of represented, um, but how that sort of fits into these larger narratives. And so can you talk a little bit about those chapters as well and what you see going on there and also how it sort of compares and relates to what you were just talking about with the, um, that previous section on the body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here again, I mean, I think that without question, embodiment and bodies are a huge sort of locus for um, how monsters are made and the meaning that monsters make through bodies. And specifically, we're looking in this section um, at bodies that bear children, which in some instances um, means maternity and means women. Um, bearing children, but in some instances, it doesn't. And so that, again, was really fascinating for us, this idea of really pushing back at our assumptions um, of the sort of foregone conclusions about um, 
reproduction and gender and embodiment. So here again, too, I think to echo Elizabeth's point, we have a really fascinating collection, um, not only of different methods of analysis, but also different types of comics. And, and that's another thing that I think we felt really strongly about from the beginning. Um, again, Elizabeth and I have done each of us work in superheroes, but that is not the whole of, of what's available mm-hmm. in comics, right? Comics is just this profoundly fascinating medium that, that manifests in so many different ways. And so we wanted this book to be a, a sort of a hydra in, in both how scholars were able to approach their study, but then also the kinds of texts that were analyzed. And I think this is a good section for that. Um, so Jeannie Ludlow starts by looking at several texts. Um, she does take a, a brief look at a superhero comic, but the focus of this chapter is um, more on comics that are about pregnancy and abortion. And one of them is um, a sort of autobiography in a way. So you, you get a different kind of combination of genres within this one chapter. And she is really playing with uh, sort of postmodern feminist ideas, mm-hmm. um, like work from Donna Haraway um, and Trinity Minha about um, being othered, and specifically along the lines of um, being othered via having a pregnant body. This is a really good chapter, too, for that sort of decoupling of pregnancy with gender. So, for instance, one of the comics she looks at um, is, like I mentioned, a sort of auto, um, autographic or autobiography of a person who identifies as non-binary and their sort of experience of being pregnant and how they're made to feel monstrous by virtue um, of their pregnant body and their gender identity. So really, really fascinating stuff. Um, we really got excited by Marcella Murillo's chapter because she's bringing in Bolivian comics, which are kind of equivalent of manga. Um, they look and read similar to manga, but obviously they're uh, sort of unique productions of Bolivia. And so here again, she surveys a series of comics to look at how Chola mothers are portrayed and how Chola women in particular in a sort of post-colonial context of Bolivia are made monstrous um, for a number of reasons, um, for ethnic and nationalist reasons, as well as gender and then presumptions about sexuality. Um, She does a really great job of situating that analysis within a broader sort of cultural study of the shifts that have been taking place, specifically around ideas of indigenous populations in Bolivia. Um, so there's no really denying that that Chola mothers are sort of made monstrous and specifically they're sort of derided um, in terms of their maternity. Are they, they good mothers? Then the answer generally is no in, in these various depictions. Um, but she does a great job of contextualizing that for us. She's, she's showing that this does not happen in a vacuum. And this was really important, again, for us to be able to show that monsters are, are social creations. They make meaning within particular cultural contexts. And I think Marcella's chapter is a really good example of that. The last one, too, uh, really powerful by Tamako Kuribayashi, um, She's working with a manga text, and this one is a great example. Uh, The text is called Marginal, of um, that sort of oozing, that slipperiness, that inability to say either or when you're looking at um, reproductive bodies and their relationships to gender. So the main character in this comic, um, it's it's almost impossible to understand this character's whether you you want to go with sex or gender identity um, through various points in the narrative, we're made to believe uh, that the character is at least what we would say assigned male at birth, um, but they don't present in normative masculine ways and the relationships that they have both intimate and um, interpersonal defy our sort of heteronormative expectations. Um, and then again, 
how this particular character reproduces um, it, it totally sort of blasts apart anything that we understand about biological um, reproduction and childbirth. And so, again, we're kind of thinking through the horror that evokes, but then also Tomoko has a lot of really interesting questions about how that has liberatory potential um, for women who have traditionally been assumed to be the source for childbirth within patriarchal cultures. What would it mean to start thinking about the possibility for other um, other embodied types of people uh, to reproduce? Would that actually provide women some kind of freedom from these sort of normative expectations that have been laid uh, because, again, of their specific embodiment and relationship to reproduction? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, again, what we're seeing here, a survey of different types of comics, different methods of analysis. Tamako is using a lot of um, postmodern theory, but a lot, a lot of work that's also borrowed from analyses of science fiction. Um, Marcella really brought something powerful in terms of bringing, at least for me, a genre that I was unfamiliar with previously, and also bringing in really good, strong post-colonial analysis. And Jeannie, I think, um, really gave us something valuable by showing us a range of different types of comics and also was writing from a, a very personal place um, in addition to being an academic. She is an activist um, for women's choice and reproductive freedom. So all throughout that, you're getting a sort of compounding of the themes that we've seen already, um, agency and paradox, embodiment, and specifically then um, bringing all that within the frame of thinking about what reproduction and childbearing means in its relationship to certain types of bodies and gender identities. And I have to just say, as a a mother whose 10-year-old daughter has become very obsessed with manga, right? Uh And 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 all the, I really appreciated that that inclusion through, right, Mm -hmm. um, in these different parts. Because often, yes, we we are just like, we're going to do the superhero thing or we do the, we're going to call it a graphic novel, so uh-huh. it doesn't sound like uh-huh. a comic thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so I really appreciated that. And I also do find that my I have a number of students who are very interested in manga and interested in, I have one student in particular who I'm like, I need to center this chapter because she's very interested in sexuality and sexual identity and how that sort of plays out um, throughout both um, Japanese work and Chinese work and, and, and thinking about those kinds of things. So I just have to say, I really appreciate those inclusions um, in your book. Um, and speaking of motherhood, your next one is sort of this idea of the role of monsters of childhood mm-hmm. is your part four and thinking of what that means. And, and this often a relationship between um, women and children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk a bit about like some of the different ways you're sort of challenging and looking at that in the earth, your the writers are in these ta- sure. in these chapters. Sure. I mean, part of what we were trying to do here is to talk about these as these are these are monsters that are sort of in one way or another kind of meant for children, although not maybe our our manga example here in the middle. I'll I'll tell you I'll give a little warning about that one. But that these are at least monsters that are part of childhood in some way. So Dan Yesbeck wrote this great chapter for us where he really takes you on a ride talking about Magica Dispel, who's a, a character from the world of Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck, um, where she is the kind of witchy character from uh, the Scrooge McDuck uh, universe, right? Um, so these Carl Bark sort of mid-century Disney comics. Um, and just how sort of perverse in a certain way this character is, right? That as a duck, um, she's kind of defying the connection between women and children. She's a kind of, um, she's a vamp in all the, in all kinds of different ways and a monstrous threat to Scrooge and his empire and, you know, uh, just sort of the, the, the social order of their world. Um, he does a great job of kind of he, first of all, just his his writing is a ride in a lot of ways. He loves uh-huh. the, the kind of pun and and uh, 
you know, the, the rhythm of his words is really great, actually. Um, just kind of riding you through everything that's going on in Duckburg um, and everything that happens in those, um, including these sort of hypocrisies around gender and class. Um, I will never look at Donald Duck the same way again, um, for <laughs> sure, after walking through that with him. Um, but then the, the speaking about uh, manga and the, the idea of Japanese comics, so um, the, the next chapter, um, Novi Shinchen and Shogawa introduced us to the work of this really classic um, uh, Kyoko Okazaki um, work in sort of horrifying adolescence. So the, the historical context of all of this is, the, is 1990s Japan and the sort of economic struggles and the uh, crisis uh, going on in the 90s in Japan around, especially around female sexuality and the sort of low birth rate and the, the idea of um, those social struggles taking shape in this one career. Um, so the the author here, the artist, was critical of the ways that young women were being portrayed during this time, and tries to, in this comic work that kind of edges on the the border of the pornographic, um, is trying to you know think about the way women's bodies are commodified in a really nuanced and interesting way. Um, it's I you know. <laughs> I want you to read the chapter, but, uh, you know, just the way that they're kind of walking you through the sort of ways that these different um, pieces work um, in that historical and cultural context is really fascinating. Um, and then speaking of a cultural context that I think really makes a huge difference, um, Xing Jian uh, Zhang did this um, chapter for us about the snake woman. So the snake woman is a figure, a sort of ancient classic figure in Chinese mythology um, who uh, kind of resurfaces in some modern storytelling in the 1980s uh, in this uh, animation series and comic called the Calabash Brothers. Um, And basically she walks us through a sort of cultural history of snake woman and how this woman who's a snake, right, could be considered in some uh, ways a kind of healer figure, but then also a threat, and how the culture changing around Snake Woman is what turns her into a more existential threat. Um, what's interesting about this is that she's using again her sort of art history language um, to walk us through all of this. Um, again, it's a woman who's embedded in a children's story, right? This, this, is, this is a monster of childhood. She's embedded in a children's story, but she's also trying to teach kind of a, our, our, the authors of her, how she works in there as villain and monster um, are trying to teach them something about uh, what it means to be the right kind of woman. And I just found it really fascinating, especially the the kind of because she's trying to walk us through this as, as a piece of art history, um, you know, and a piece of cultural history, she just walked us very carefully through everything that's going on in this, is this piece and in this character. So you end with this sort of examinate, right? This bringing everything together, I guess, mm-hmm. um, these contested space, right? You talk about um, being a monster, being sort of, in a contested space, in a sort of space that challenges traditional gender norms and identities and areas. And so you sort of end with three pieces that um, start to get at that. I mean, not that the whole book isn't pushing at that, Mm -hmm. but the focus of these three is to sort of really push at that role of monster and what that means. Um, And so can you talk about sort of what, how you closed out um, these, this collection? Yeah. Um, so I think that that in a way, this section also highlights one of the the main sort of points of focus that we have throughout the whole project. So when you're coming at sort of monster studies um, from a feminist perspective, there is the potential to come up with nothing but a litany of abuses. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it could just wind up being a sort of survey of of all the horrible ways that women are treated monstrously and um, the sort of, yeah, monstrous experiences they have in, in patriarchal um, or curiarchical cultures. And we really didn't want that. And, and I think that's also a really kind of one-dimensional reading of, of monster theory that we have to keep reminding ourselves while it is um, about a certain type of subject who evokes fear that that person is also in some ways an embodiment of power. They also evoke desire. And so we were trying to really sort of round out the book by thinking about how on the one hand, um, various women get placed into the role of monster completely against their will and maybe sometimes even without their knowledge. They're sort of cast in this role. And so we wanted to look at at what that might mean. What are the actual ramifications of being put in the, the role of monster? But then we were also interested in various types of women characters who you expect to be framed as monstrous according to their cultural context but who absolutely defy that characterization Mm -hmm. by everything that they are and how they choose to be. Um, So with the first chapter, uh, we have Justin Weigor doing a really impressive sort of combination of traditional comparative literary analysis and visual rhetorical analysis. So he's looking specifically at the... um, character in the epic Beowulf, he's looking at Grendel's mother. And so he begins by doing a sort of historical overview of the various renditions um, of the story. And again, a sort of comparative analysis of the language that's used and how it changes over time, such that this character becomes increasingly monstrous. And so he's asking a lot of questions um, about the translators and about the very various renditions of the text to try to figure out why. Uh, why is it that certain vocabulary goes from being a bit more generic to um, identifying her in very specifically monstrous ways? And, and we're talking about a character then who obviously doesn't really exhibit any kind of agency. We don't really get any character traits. Um, I mean, she is just, she is a, a kind of classic monster and and so what does that mean? Um, how, how does that particular type of character make meaning? So he looks to sort of visual rhetorics of a graphic novel interpretation of Beowulf um, to try to determine what it is that the creators are hoping to say by creating this role. Um, and, and so he's got a lot of really good critical questions about Who's actually being depicted here? Whose anxieties? Whose fears? Um, what kinds of desires are being evoked through the visual rhetorics in the book? And again, does that actually have anything to do <laughs> with with women and with mothers, um, or is this all kind of a, a boys' game? With Pauline Reynolds and Sarah Durazo Damas's chapter. Here again, they're they're looking at a comic called The Jaguar that features a character um, who, I guess, in some ways, we can kind of unproblematically say, yeah, she aligns with monstrosity because she can transform. Her superpowers um, allow her to become the jaguar, so a sort of bigger, stronger pseudo-bestial character who can fight bad guys. Um, But that's not really what makes her monstrous. Um, In the context of this comic, she is a foreign, basically, student. She's Latina. She winds up in a campus uh, that's very waspy. And so she's put in the role of monster, not because of her claws and her strength and her increased size, um, but because she is a woman, she's uh, a foreigner, and she's Latina. And so here again, we're sort of examining the role of monster. What kind of assumptions do we have um, about certain types of people? And, and how are they forced into that role versus how do they occupy it uh, by will? 
Similarly, that last chapter um, by Christy Knopf is uh, about a comic called Saucer Country and then a version of it called Saucer State. And she's looking at the main character, Arcadia Alvarado. Now, this is somebody that, again, um, based on her identity within at least a fictional U.S. society, but it's recognizable to us as being resonant with what we would understand because she's Mexican-American woman. Um, she has a has been abused in her past. She's divorced um, and she's in politics. This is exactly the type of person that we would expect um, to be framed as monstrous by a society, which is white supremacist and patriarchal and so on. Um, but then also uh, her various encounters with politicians, most frighteningly, and then with aliens, sort of less worryingly, <laughs> we start to have questions about whether she will start to exhibit monstrosity. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in fact, what Christy really shows us is that this person pushes back against all of that. She is being solidly sort of shoved into the role of monster. But in fact, the way that she performs um, her role as, as who she is, as the culmination of her experiences, actually is completely divorced of monstrosity. And the, the people that really become the, the villains, the, the bad monsters by the end, um, are nothing like her at all. So that push and pull was really important to us. And again, I think there's something really kind of invigorating about all of these chapters um, because we get to see in the, the latter two cases um, how women have the capacity to push back even when they've been assigned a particular role. And then even with, with Justin's work, um, we can kind of confidently say that sometimes whether it looks like a woman, it may have absolutely nothing to do with women at all. Um, and it's telling us something about, about different types of people altogether. Mm -hmm. And it, it made a lot of sense that here at the end, especially the whole, the, our, our, our piece here is actually pushing back um, at the whole idea of monster. Like that felt really appropriate to us that the, the way the book kind of takes us in an arc from well, is monster the the idea to be interrogated here and kind of takes us on a ride all through it until we're finally, you know, questioning it uh, at the very end, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's any book that's simply monsters and doesn't question its own monstrosity, I think uh, is not the book for us. <laughs> um, we, we wanted something that, that kind of had those porous edges. And I mean, that's, that's one of the things that you might have seen in the, taking you through the kind of sections is that, you know, every border bleeds. Every piece of this is a little bit porous. There's no part of it that stands completely by itself. Every part of it has kind of ideas that work in the other places as well, which mm -hmm. for a book about using monster, monster theory and the monstrous, I think, really works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. And I, I really appreciate that about this collection that and you've said it before, but that idea that it isn't just like, let's look at the superheroes and how, you know, monster is created in this more traditional way. Um, but sort of pushing at some of these, these traditional sort of narratives that we often think about when we think about um, the monstrous in comics. We've been talking for a while, so I, usually my usually final question um, is: Is this what are you doing next? I mean, we're in this weird like space right now in in the world, um, all waiting for twenty twenty to come to its end, hopefully soon. Um, but it, are there things you are either working on with this collection? I know that um, conferences and that kind of thing are not really going on in the same way, uh, but whether it's with this collection or anything new that either or both of you are working on that you sort of want to put out there or share? Um, well, I will just say that even after the conference, we were still getting emails from people asking if there would be another one the following year. And mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't, wasn't in the works at the time. But um, I think that is something, again, that for us is very intentional with this book, 
this is, is not the only book that could be written um, about monstrous women in comics. And it, and it certainly is not the only one that could be composed about monstrosity in or and comics. Um, and so whether we're a part of future conferences or projects that continue this framework of monstrosity, uh, I think that it's really fruitful and exciting. And I think there's a lot of people out there doing work um, that that's sort of further exploring the intersections of all of these themes. And I think that's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to see more, to read more. Um, yeah, we, we may be a part of it somewhere along the lines, but um, this, this was the project we wanted to make. And, and it's discreet in a way. Um, this, this particular collection, these particular themes mm-hmm. were what we could do, hoping that it would inspire others mm-hmm. um, to do more. From a personal place, I will say I'm currently working. Um, you know, we've, we've been excited about moving beyond superheroes, but I, I am actually working <laughs> on a, a book project that's looking specifically at female-led superhero comics. And so that's sort of my focus. Um, I've been developing the work over the last several years, but now it's time to actually pin it all down into a, a book. And so for the next... 12 months or so, I'll be pulling that manuscript together um, and hopefully have it submitted to a press by about this time next year. Well, well, for me, I can't, my, my work in the monstrous, like this, this kind of monster theory work uh, really uh, got its hooks into my teaching. Um, so I do uh, for my, my uh, Morningside College, my employer, I do a, a yearly course um, on, for freshmen, it's called, ours is called uh, Critical Inquiry and Communication, but it's the sort of pick a topic and try to help people understand the ins and outs of college. Um, and so my theme uh, for the last couple of years has been monsters and fears. And the the process of taking students through these monster ideas, um, you know, taking someone who's, you know, 18 and walking into the college for the first time and talking to mm-hmm. them about monsters has been really rewarding. Like these ideas have legs. They work on a, on a teaching level in a way that I really didn't, (laughs) really didn't uh, fully wasn't sold on, but knew I was working on the project. And so wanted to get it into my classroom, Um, you know, and then on the other side of it too, thinking about just the, the comic side. um, So my, my current project is I'm working um, to do a second edition of Understanding Religion and Popular Culture, which is a, a Rutledge Press um, book. And I can't stop thinking about the sort of lessons that I learned from this uh, collection, um, getting together those kinds of pieces from people. And again, letting people play to their strengths uh, intellectually, um, trying to find people, doing things from a wider diversity of fields and points of view to really give the work a richness. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> it, I feel like this collection has um, taught me a lot just in the process of doing it with Sam. It has been such a joy. Well, that is a wonderful like note then to end on. <laughs> Again, like it, this was um, Sam Langsdale and Elizabeth Cody talking about Monstrous Women in Comics, their new edited collection. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was a really awesome conversation. Yes, thank you. <laughs>